In the 1960s, where rioting was virtually a norm and freedom fighters were asking, who do you turn to when a cop hits you? They weren't thinking about where you turn when an elected official sticks his finger in a voter's chest and shouts, I don't work for you. It's clear we can't count on our elected officials to stand up for what's right. The law, truth, justice. Actually, we do have one ally. He's with you now. He's Dan Newman. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a brand new week at TNN Live. And I'm sure you had a great weekend. I hope you did. I'm probably guessing a really busy weekend for you, right? I mean, it's that time of year. We're about to face Halloween and then Thanksgiving. And then, of course, Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's right behind those. It's going to be fast and furious from here till after the first of the year. But you know that. I mean, that's what we've lived through for all these many, many, many years, right? Life is seasonal. And we look at life in sound bites almost, you know, where we put everything in this quarter, we put it right here and in this quarter, and we only got four quarters a year. <laughs> and so every one of them has gotten busier and busier and busier and more and more important, more things to worry about. Well, let me just give you a little piece of advice. I had a Sunday school teacher way back in high school. I think it was my junior year. And he had a great saying that he brought up every once in a while when teenagers, now think about it, we're talking about teenagers back in the very end of the 60s, the beginning of the 70s. We had the Vietnam War going on. We had just seen the United States be introduced to LSD and, of course, all of the other drugs that were coming around. Marijuana was everywhere. Hippies. Uh, we had Woodstock in the summer of 1969. So there was a lot going on. And there was a lot of chaos going on. Maybe just like we have today, but just about different things. And we think that it's so much worse now. It's so much worse now because we didn't have satellite television back then. All we had were firsthand news reports about every, everything. And so we were restricted. We didn't see everything like we do today. And let me let you in on a little secret. I'm kind of glad that we didn't back then because what I saw as a teenager finishing up high school, getting ready to go to college, I didn't like what I saw. I didn't like all the chaos. Kent State University? All those kids were shot and killed by the National Guard just for demonstrating. I didn't like that world. I didn't like what was happening to all of our GIs that went to Southeast Asia. They didn't want to go. They got drafted and told to go, and they went over there. They had no idea why they were there. And every second of the time they spent in Southeast Asia, they were inches and seconds away from being killed. And they died, many of them. 50,000, 60,000 died not even knowing why they were there. And then when they come back to the United States, when they finished their deployment in Southeast Asia, Americans back here were meeting them at the airports in the nation, screaming and hollering obscenities and blaming them for killing all of those evil Vietnamese people. How do you think that makes you feel in your late teens if that's the way your fellow citizens treated you. You know, we're facing a lot of that same stuff right now. 
I mean, think about it. Look, look around. The Attorney General of the United States wrote a letter to every FBI field office around the U.S. instructing them to watch very closely and investigate United States parents of kids in public schools. And these parents were going to these school board meetings and they were becoming raucous and were attacking school board members and that he wanted them to work with local officials to investigate these parents and treat them as domestic terrorists? That's happening today in our world. What's also happening in our world, and this is a horrible, horrible thing and a story to talk about, our FBI is storming the homes of private citizens almost weekly now, Many of those storms, they're going to these houses and uh, with grandiose airplanes, tele, uh, helicopters flying overhead, TV crews there, SWAT, and they're arresting these abortion clinic pro-life Americans. And one such arrest wasn't about that. It was a newsman, a newsman that was in the process of writing and releasing a documentary that was questioning the January 6th stuff and also the 9-11 stuff. We'll get into that story a little bit later, but they took him. They hauled him off to jail. He hasn't been seen since. And then we have the January 6th guys. Probably 120 of them are still in the slammer in Washington, D.C. Many of them have been there for a year and a half. They've been charged but no speedy trial as is guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution. President Biden and his minions want to talk to us about the evil super MAGA people. They don't like democracy. They want to destroy our democracy. Let me tell you what's happening. All of this Department of Justice stuff, the FBI, it is the epitome of fascism and totalitarianism when the government or any branch of the government has the unfettered power to just do what they want to do against the citizens of that nation, wherever that nation is. And it is the United States of America. At the top of our second hour, Congressman Mike Johnson will join us. And as I uh, was talking to him and setting up the topics that I wanted him to discuss with us, It boiled down to two, really. There'll be a few more. But the principle two was his opinion of what's ahead in the midterm elections in two weeks. That's an important thing, and he's got a little more inside information than you or I have. So he's going to bring us that news. And then I wanted him to share with us all of this oppressiveness that is happening coming out of the Department of Justice, including the FBI. We're going to get him to weigh in on that. Maybe another one or two topics, but make sure you circle back and be here at the top of the hour if you have to leave. That's about 52, 53 minutes from now. He'll be joining us. What else is happening in your world to get your day started, to get your week started? I know you know that there is so much going on in the world, and over the weekend, many of us try to just stay away from it. I had probably the busiest weekend I've had in years. I won't go into all the details, but I spent all day yesterday 
driving to a city in eastern North Louisiana and back twice. 360 miles round trip I drove yesterday and doing stuff in between, meetings and all those kinds of things happening. On a Sunday, believe it or not, that's kind of the life we live in the United States of America. Now, we're all very, very busy. We're caught up in our worlds. We're caught up in the worlds of our kids. And it just seems like the atmosphere is charged with hatred and anger. And people just don't like other people. And authority and authority figures, oh my gosh. It's as if in the United States, every member of every police force, EMS force, anybody in government and authority, everybody's got a bullseye on their back. People are just angry. And I don't see it getting any better, even with the midterm elections, no matter what the outcomes are. There are some things that are coming up about the midterm election that are eerily similar to what we saw in 2020. Uh-oh. What am I talking about? Early voting and mail-in ballot turnouts. They're off the charts. Nationwide early voting and vote-by-mail turnout trends for this midterm They show a pattern that's a lot like that of the pandemic-skewered 2020 election. So as a result, they're saying now that it may take several days after the polls close on November 8th for the results to be confirmed in the big key battleground states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. In-person early voting periods and vote-by-mail have grown increasingly popular over the last two decades. It's because of our busy lives. Mail-in and vote-by-mail became mainstream during the 2020 election. More than 101 million of us voted early in in-person votes or vote-by-mail. This election early vote and vote-by-mail turnout is expected to easily eclipse the record for midterm elections set back in 2018. Back then, more than 5 million voters cast early in-person ballots. 30.4 million voted by mail. The total this year may come close to matching the number of ballots cast before Election Day in 2020. And the, the odd thing about it is, this is a midterm. People don't really get out and vote big time unless there's a presidential election going on. So according to University of Florida's United States Election Project, As of October 23rd, yesterday, more than 7.46 million Americans have already voted. 7.46. Now, that's a lot of people. But you put that in uh, context of we've got maybe 160 million, 170 million Americans who are going to vote. 7.46 is a drop in the bucket. But it will ramp up exponentially this week. Of those 7.46 million... Nearly 1,650,000 were cast in person in those 27 states where you can vote early. Early voting, the periods range from 4 to 45 days before Election Day. Now, that in itself creates some problems. Why is that? As you get closer to voting day, regarding candidates, a lot of candidates, there's a lot of stuff that comes out leading up in the last few days to a general election, a presidential election, and a midterm election. A lot of that's coming out now, and people, as we said, 
7.46 have already million have already voted. So by the end of this week, 18 states, another 18 will open their polls for in-person voting. Seven states open up today. That includes Florida, Texas, Colorado, and ending with New York and New Jersey on the 29th of this month. More than 5.8 million mail ballots of 41.52 million requested nationwide have already been returned to the local elections offices as of yesterday. Not all states break down their early votes and mailed votes by political affiliation when posting their turnout figures. In Kansas, North Carolina, and New Mexico, 138,406 Democrats, that's 40.5%, and 112,000 Republicans voted early in person. Now, don't let, if you're a conservative, don't think those numbers are representative of how it's going to turn out. 138,000 Democrats, 112,000 Republicans have voted early in those states. Listen why that's not an issue. Republicans historically vote in mass in greater, much greater numbers in person. They like to go to the polls rather than do the mail-in thing. Georgia opened its early voting period a week ago, reported more than 740,000 early ballots as of yesterday, and early voting ends there November 5th. Georgia tally includes a record midterm first day early voting turnout of 131,000. That's twice as high as the 71,000 first day early voters cast back in 2018, nearly matching the 136,000 that showed up on the first day of early voting in 2020. And there are different pictures of this in other states around the country. But let me tell you what is the thread that is going through the common thread through all of this. Americans are really worried about our government. They're really worried about where we're going. And they want to make some changes. I just get a sense. And I'm not a forecaster. I'm not a pollster. I'm not talking to anybody but people around me in my circle of influence. But I think and I, don't, I hate to use the RW word, the red wave, but I think we're going to see one if all of the votes are legally cast votes or counted. I think Republicans are going to win by a landslide. Remember, there's no Joe Biden on this election. If he was up for election this time, I think it, it would be a almost... higher turnout than what we're going to have. Historically in midterms, the turnout is not that big, but it's going to set records. And it's because there's so much trouble in the world around us that is directly impacting so many voters. Nobody's, nobody's, uh, has got an exclusive and can be considered to be exempt from the problems that are around us. It doesn't matter if you got a lot of money or if you're a, a bottom economic person. It doesn't matter. It's affecting everybody, top to Biden. You heard what I said, top to Biden? <laughs> top, top to bottom. And Biden falls in that bottom thing. Thinking of uh, Joe Biden, boy, he was out over the weekend and he just stepped all over it. Listen to this. He's trying to find a way to buy Democrat votes. Nobody can credibly say that's not what this president is doing. He was out and he says all these things off, off the top of his head. 
that his handlers don't want him to say, including his wife. He said he's going to support the use of federal funds to help women afford abortions. Now, what is that all about? Well, we know what it is about. He wants to buy the support of women after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and sent that whole legality process, sent it back to the states, where states have the total authority to determine if abortions are going to be legal or illegal in their states and what are the terms and conditions. Now, even with that, they, the Democrats, the far left, have painted the picture for all Americans that the Supreme Court ruled that abortion is illegal. It's not true. It's not true at all. What state do you live in? Talk to your legislature in your state. You're a member of the state senate or the state house of representatives. They're the ones that decide on abortion, according to the Supreme Court, going forward. And I just want to reiterate one thing, and we're going to move on. Nowhere is the word abortion used in the Constitution in any setting. Nowhere in the Constitution is there any guarantee for anything regarding health care for Americans. Our lawmakers, our founders at the beginning of this, they were comfortable by turning those decisions over to the people directly. Directly, which means... They didn't want a federal government making these kind of social issue determinations. Why? Because Congress is in Washington, D.C. They're on large part not involved hand-to-hand talking to the people in their states. And this is a determination and an edict for these legislators to find out what the people in their states want regarding abortion. And if We need, in those states, if we need legislation, then those legislators pass, debate, do whatever, talk to their constituents, and they come up with their rules and regulations regarding abortion. And then you have states like California. Governor Gavin Newsom, I mean, he's ringing the bell. They've created an abortion community, a whole industry there. Hey, come on out. We'll give you an abortion We'll even make it easy for you. We're going to have these convenient abortion clinics scattered around the big cities in the state of California where every Californian can just walk in off the street and get an abortion. And if you live in some other state, it's not legal for you to have an abortion in your state. Come on down. California is a beautiful state. Come see our state. Enjoy our food and our scenic life because there is gorgeous stuff all over the state of California. Come see us. He's turned again to an industry. And you know what? If the people of California want that, that's okay. That's okay. No state should have any say-so about what goes in another state outside of the rule of law as established in the United States Constitution. Other than that, People of California want to become an abortion mill, so be it. That's between them and their governor. But back to the president. All this talk about inflation, it just it just ramps up every day. 
And now over the weekend, a Democrat economist, and I mean one of the greatest of all time, even when he was serving under Democrat presidents, he was still a very knowledgeable guy and still is. I'm talking about former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. And he said this, that fiscal debates, fiscal, talking about economic policies, got to be put back on the table. Why? Surging government borrowing costs risk a potential deficit, what he called doom loop. Larry Summers made the remarks on Friday when he was on uh, Bloomberg Television's Wall Street Week. He said that the Biden administration's big spending initiatives, including that student loan forgiveness thing that caused the monthly deficit to jump to 562%. Did you get that? The monthly deficit over the last year in comparison to last month, the Biden administration, it jumped 562% in one day. And Summers is sharing that because he says this is going to shake the confidence of investors. Quote, if your deficit projection starts to get out of control and your real interest rates start to rise rapidly, you got to get it and find yourselves in a kind of a doom loop. We're going to need to be watching our own fiscal projections in the U.S. very carefully. So while our budget deficit is down to $1.38 trillion this year, I cannot even fathom them saying that's a big deal. It's it's down to only $1.3 trillion more that we're spending in our government than the government has. But that's down from $2.78 trillion in fiscal 2021. It was, however, 562% higher on a monthly basis compared with September of 2021. And so what's this all about? It reflects, and mostly the big jump, is Biden's students' debt forgiveness. As several years' worth of cost were compressed into a single month. In other words, it's midterm election time. Oh my gosh, we got to go out there and buy votes. How do you do that? Government giveaways. You got a student loan hanging over your head. Your kid got one hanging over your head. Don't worry about it. Uncle Joe's going to pay it off. Yeah, right. Uncle Joe is not going to pay for one student debt forgiveness. There is no such thing as canceling debt. Somebody bites the weenie if there's some loan that is being canceled, the obligation there. And who bites that weenie? On all the student loan stuff, the American citizen. We're going to pay for it. Another prominent economist who was warned about risk of a high debt as our borrowing costs continue to rise is Nuri Rubini, a professor of economics at New York University's Stern School of Business. He got the nickname of Dr. Doom for his accurate prediction of the market meltdown that happened back in 2008, 2009, and almost caused us to have an economic depression. Rubini said in an opinion piece, that under conditions of much higher private and public debt levels now that compared to in the past, central bank rate hikes 
to tame soaring inflation carry a major downside risk. Now, what's this all about? We have an economy that's just burning in spite of all of these bad things that we're talking about. How do you stop that? The Federal Reserve raises interest rates. And so what happens? Our economic operations slow down. And that theoretically will immediately start reducing inflation. Rapid normalization of monetary policy and rising interest rates will drive highly leveraged households, companies, financial institutions, and governments into bankruptcy and default. Robini is actually saying we're going to see a government, governments around the U.S. They're talking about state, local governments. All of this big spending and inflation. We're going to see those entities going into bankruptcy and default. Now, don't poopah him. He predicted the 0809. They called it a deficit, but it was closer, as close as I've ever seen in my lifetime, to a, a repression, a recession, doomsday. Comes as Republicans have criticized. The Biden administration's big-ticket spending have been flagging the need for spending cuts to stay away from recession. It's the R word, and it's everywhere. So what else is the president guilty of today? Well, over the weekend, he made a few media stops. And he made some bizarre, very bizarre comments while he was outlining a bunch of his student loan forgiveness program at the Now This News forum that covered a whole bunch of different issues. And so Biden's plan, this student loan thing, would essentially give up to 20 grand in student loan cancellation to Americans earning less than $125,000 a year if they got Pell Grants up to $10,000 in cancellation if they didn't get Pell Grants, but student loans. A Convention of States Action Travalgar Group survey found that a majority of us would not vote for candidates who support the cancellation of student debt. And they're talking about in two weeks, the midterms. It said this, overall, 56% indicate they're less likely to support a candidate who supports the president's plan of those who said they're less likely to vote for such a political candidate. 49% they are much less likely. 6.6% said they are somewhat less likely. But 45% said they are more likely to offer their support for a candidate who supports it. Obviously, opinions are divided on party lines. The overwhelming majority of Democrats, 90%, said they are more likely to vote for a candidate who supports Biden's plan. But 88.5% of Republicans said they are less likely. 54% of independents feel the same way as those Republicans. It's real simple. It boils down to this. Our forefathers talked about it. Thomas Jefferson wrote extensively about it. When you have a nation, it will fail when half of the people, the ones that are 
being taxed and providing most of the income through taxes that goes to the government. When those people discover that that money is being spent on the other half that isn't paying into that tax system, that that government is going to fail when the people paying all the taxes realize they're paying for all these other people and the other people are getting the same goods and services from the government as the guys that are paying all of the money in and tax for them. That's when government is going to fail. Now, what would make that happen here? It's when those evil, wealthy people that Biden demonized every day, we need to take money from the wealthy and give it to the poor people. The Robin Hood effect. It does not work. It doesn't work. It must be equal across the financial spectrum, and everybody should be on the same page about percentages. Percentages, not dollars and cents. It all turns into dollars and cents, but if you got a guy out there that makes a million dollars a year, net a million a year, he should pay the same percentage. This is my opinion, but it would be fair if he paid whatever the percentage is that's agreed upon as the couple that just got married, starting a family, just buying a home, and they make $100,000 a year, percentage-wise, it's fair in my mind and fair in most of the Americans' minds that if the big guy making a million years is going to pay 7% of his income for federal income taxes, he's going to pay $70,000. If this young couple pays 7% of their income, 100000 a year, they're going to pay 7000 Percentage-wise, it's all equal, not in dollars and cents. And instead of looking at dollars and cents and resenting those that are making a lot of money, I'll just tell you this, everybody I know, and I know a bunch of people that are making a lot of money. When I look back in my rearview mirror, I'm 69. In businesses, I wrote several million-dollar checks. When I was doing that and people that worked for us weren't doing that, I didn't like paying taxes on that kind of money. And people that worked for me didn't like paying taxes on their income. But if we all get on the same page about a percentage, a percentage of everything we make should go to the government so the government could take care of all of us as the federal government is supposed to. I think if we get there, it'll make a lot of people much more happy about their lives than they are today. It is not a good place to live in resentment, resentment for others. It more often than not turns into anger and hatred. And that's not the world in which we want to live, folks. It's bad enough as it is. But we, we don't want to live in a world where everybody hates everybody. Why? Just because they make a lot of money. And they're not paying the dollars that we think they should be paying or Joe Biden and Democrats think that they should be paying. Many of those Democrats in government, they find all kinds of ways to avoid paying taxes. In fact, you hear the term tax loopholes. 
There are always a bunch of those around there. And you know who writes those into the legislation that is passed about taxes? Those politicians. Don't think for a second. They don't know what they're doing. At our expense, they're often crafting legislation that benefits them. Oh, we'll get a little bump, us middle class folks down there, but nothing like those evil rich people. In almost every case, those evil rich people own companies that employ millions of Americans and those corporations and then those people that own those corporations, they pay in tens of millions of dollars. And to be honest with you, there's a new data story out. I found it last week. I'll dig it up again. We didn't get to bring it to you. But technically, right now, the top 40% of Americans are paying 100% of the tax bill to run our government. Think about that. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll pick up where we're leaving off. But don't forget, in about 25, 26 minutes, Congressman Mike Johnson will join us live at TNN Live. I'm Chad Hall, and I'm here with the first ever Silverado ZR2. This is probably the first time you've seen this truck, but I've been racing a prototype version for over a year. We just inspired this pre-production truck you see behind me. Let's go see what it'll do. Copy. It's got phenomenal power, acceleration, good ground clearance, skid protection, and you've got the Multimatic GSSV shocks, so it's just going to be that much more of a fun truck. You want to go a little faster? Go for it. Copy. It's an amazing truck. You're going to want to get your hands on one. Nervous? Yeah. Oh, Blaze. Brings back so many good memories. Remember our road trip in 97? Our first real heart to heart. I've never seen any of your movies! Not even the ones we're in together! Hey, do you remember when that stalker kidnapped us? Yes! Blaze was there. Blaze. Do you have a barbecue? Or a cheddar jalapeno? Oh, remember when we stumbled into that turf war? Remember when you bought your first house? Ah! Those were good times. They were golden. You ready? Seth, do you? I do. And Janet, do you? That's a yes. The truth as only he can tell it. Dan Newman, TNN, truthnewsnet.org. Well, I don't have an exclusive on telling the truth. During that first half hour, got some comments. And please, I love love hearing your comments via text or email. And don't get upset if I can't respond right when you send it because simply the microphone's open here and we're doing work. James Posey said when we were talking about the Biden economic stuff up front, he said, very well said. Thank you, James, for that. Talking about what's going on out in California and other states and Gavin Newsom specifically, 
I mean, he's appealing to everybody. Come on down. We'll give you an abortion. Peter, who's he's listening on the West Coast, said, drive through abortions, leave with the cheeseburger. <laughs> I know that sounds crass, but I got to be honest with you. It's almost the way they think. The left think that thing that is about to be born in those babies' bellies is not a baby. It's not. It's a thing. And they use the excuse to justify all of their slaughters. They use the excuse, oh, it's not alive until it's born and it takes its first breath. Uh, By the way, that's not a medical determination. That's a political determination, which they are very confident they can sell that to a majority of the American people. And Planned Parenthood, oh my gosh, they'll keep killing babies. That's what they're all about. Congressman Mike Johnson coming up at the top of the hour. Between now and then, Jesse Waters. I love Jesse Waters. He's kind of, uh, he's a statesman, nowhere near the type of statesman that is Senator John Kennedy, who you're going to hear from in just a little bit. Hopefully we can get to him before we uh, get with the congressman. I want you to be thinking about all, all of this and have a clear mind when Mike gets here. But nevertheless, Jesse weighed in and he gave us a clue. If you're wondering where in the world is Joe Biden going to take this nation, Jesse figured out where that just might be. We all love ourselves a good reality TV show. You might not learn anything from them, but we sure love the drama. And if you think about it, politics is really just one big reality show. You might as well call it the Real Housewives of the Campaign Trail. The Clintons, season one. Every episode was another scandal. Are you prepared tonight to say that you've never had an extramarital affair? I'm not prepared tonight to say that any married couple should ever discuss that with anyone but themselves. Season two gave us Barack and Michelle, the spunky new couple on the block who got off to a rocky start. Hope is making a comeback. It is making a comeback. And let me tell you something. For the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. But as all reality shows do, after two seasons, you have to come up with new ways to keep the audience interested. So you throw in a little twist for season three. A guy who's lost his mind and his poor wife who has to put up with it. By the way, this is my little sister, Valerie, and I'm Jill's husband. Oh, no, this is the, oh, you switched on me. This is my wife. This is my sister. They switched on me. <laughs> and it was their most popular season yet. They say it got over 81 million people hooked. A clueless husband plays president while his wife does her best to act like everything's normal. It's a double whammy, entertainment and suspense. But they're making season four even crazier. Believe it or not, they found someone better than Joe to play the clueless husband role. And his name is John Fetterman, the guy who just had a stroke and is running for U.S. Senate. Send me to Washington, D.C. to send so I can work with Senator Casey and I can champion the union way of life in Jersey, excuse me, in D.C., Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's an honor. I live eight minutes away from here. And when I leave tonight, I got three miles away. Dr. Oz, 
in his mansion in New Jersey. Super fans like us at primetime always look for clues, you know, like little comments that tell us where the plot's going. And Joe Biden just gave us one. And John, thank you uh, very much for uh, for running. I really do appreciate it. And Zell, you're going to you're going to be a great, uh, a great lady in the Senate. So it actually looks like Giselle is the candidate, not John. Earlier in the episode, she was seen pulling her husband away from reporters and doing all the talking. Watch. Mr. Uh, Fetterman, are are you satisfied with the progress of the bridge? The bridge question was too much for John. So the real candidate had to step in. The real candidate later got a tour of the Air Force One, trying some presidential candy and taking pictures with the big guy from season three. Plus, she had to shake hands with the fans, went over some votes for herself. I mean, you know, for John. We don't know where John was all this afternoon, but that's the point, because John's not really the star of the show here, and he never was. Now, you may have noticed I am not John Fetterman. I would like to uh, take a moment to address the elephant in the room, which is that my husband, John Fetterman, is not in the room tonight. Giselle's in full control. She's the brains of the operation, and John really is just her arm candy. Those are direct quotes from her. She's the brains, and he's arm candy. Now watch the two of them interact, and tell me if you notice something. Hey, everybody. It's John and Giselle. As you can see, we hit a little bump on the campaign trail. Um, It was on Friday. Uh, I just wasn't feeling very well, so I decided, you know what, I need to get checked out, so I I went to the hospital. I need to get checked out. Because I was right, as always. (laughs) We all know women like this, don't we? Sometimes it's cute. It could be their thing. There's affection there. But if Fetterman wasn't listening to his doctor for years, which led him to have a heart attack, not taking his meds, what was Giselle doing the whole time? Why wasn't Giselle on it? Well, hopefully we'll learn more about that next season. Now, primetime doesn't usually care about the wives of candidates, but we do when it seems like they're the actual candidates. So it's worth asking, who is Giselle Fetterman? Well, she's a bisexual Brazilian immigrant who swept John off his feet, which is hard to do, but I think she's into CrossFit. And let's just say it took a little work. The way Giselle and I met was really kind of strange. (laughs) I was actually working out of Newark at the time, and I happened to be at a yoga retreat. And it talked about this discarded city. It was this article that mentioned Braddock. She wrote me a letter, and she ended up coming to visit in early October of later that year, and uh, it just kind of went from there. And that was, you know, eight years ago and three kids ago, and I showed up and kind of never left. You went to a yoga retreat, and during said retreat, you happened to read an article about Braddock, Pennsylvania, and how rundown the town was. So you decided to write a letter to the mayor of the rundown town? and told him you wanted to visit him in the rundown town? You were a Brazilian national, and when you married him, you became a U.S. citizen, and now people call you the slop, which is short for the second lady of Pennsylvania? So what's life like for the slop? Well, take a look for yourself. Giselle, where do you live? I live in a converted car dealership in Braddock, Pennsylvania. Cool. Is that a picture of your husband up there? I left his head on all of these because... You know, it's a public, a lot of people come here. So I thought that was nice. (laughs) 
there's a lot to unpack here. She married a guy who was living with his parents, and then they moved into a converted car dealership, and now she's giving tours. And she left his head on all the family photos. It's the perfect love story. But how does Giselle really feel about her husband? What one thing do most people not know about your husband? Oh, that he's so sensitive. They think he's this big, tough guy, but he's a really emotional, big, softy baby. If you could reverse jobs with your husband, what would be the first law that you change in office? Um, well, he doesn't, he can't. If I could change laws in his position, but there's a lot of a change. Again, I'm picking up vibes that she's the real candidate here. If you could switch jobs with your husband. I'm also getting the sense that this is all a part of Giselle's plan. Not sure if she hatched it during the yoga retreat in Brazil or in John's parents' basement. But there's something quite calculating about Giselle, which would make her the perfect senator. And the media is reading from the same script. They're admitting Pennsylvanians aren't just voting for John Fetterman. It's actually a package deal by voting for Giselle, too. It's not just the candidate, but the couple that makes this campaign unconventional. If John is bringing the casual, his wife, Giselle, is bringing the polish and the personality. She's been front and center at rallies, on social media, and in campaign emails. How did that come about? How did you guys decide to really come as a package deal in this way? I think we are. I mean, our family is a package deal. And they're already selling her like she's the one on the ballot. The Washington Post is saying she's forging on through her husband's heated Senate race. And even Rolling Stone is calling her a, quote, unlikely political star. They say Fetterman only offers high fives and fist bumps to his supporters and repeats a gruff thank you. But it's Giselle staying just a pace ahead of her husband who takes the questions, accepts the compliments, and carries on the conversations. <laughs> Maybe this is what John meant when he said this. My name is... John Fetterwoman! Isn't this the craziest season yet? So if John wins, Giselle's coming to D.C. Has the bisexual Brazilian immigrant been vetted? I doubt it, but that's the point. They'll vote with Schumer 100% of the time, and Giselle becomes the star. You'll see her on MSNBC every week on the cover of Vogue. When Hunter finds out she's bisexual, he'll make a run. I'm sure the Chinese already have a folder on her. Who knows, the Chinese may already hacked into his computer translator machine. I'm sure the FBI is all over that. She's definitely not a Brazilian fang fang. That would really make the next season interesting. <laughs> Jesse, he has a succinct way to colorfully um, tell us about people that are in government and running, want to be in government. He really did a good job there with John Fetterman. He made a mistake, though. He said Fetterman had a heart attack. He didn't. He, that's bad enough. He had a stroke, and that's the principal reason for his, um, not a language problem, his communication, hearing and responding by speaking. I would think, maybe just, I'm a critic, but I would think anybody, everybody that serves in the U.S. Senate should be able to talk clearly and think clearly about every issue. That's just my opinion. Hey, when we come back, a quick look at some of the election stuff that's happening, the polls. Not just political, not just lifestyle, but always relevant. Real truth, real news, TNN, the Truth News Network.
Welcome to Burger King. Can I take your order, please? I'm here for the most wanted. Sorry, sir. Can you repeat that? The gang known as the Western Whopper. Ah, you mean our new Texas barbecue beef bacon and sweet Carolina Whoppers, right? Yes, I need them now. Try the new Texas barbecue beef bacon, or our tasty honey mustard sauce on our sweet Carolina Whoppers at your nearest BK today. Burger King, have it your way. How hard is it to unlock your car? Not hard. How hard is it to shut your car door? Not hard. How hard is it to start your car? Not hard. How hard is it to put your seatbelt on? People are still dying in car accidents because they were not wearing a seatbelt, which is stupid because it's not that hard. Smarten up, buckle up. Think road safety. A message from the Government of South Australia. got elections. I guess every state's got elections and we've got uh, a, a bunch of people running for the U.S. Senate in various states. And this is a big deal because right now it's 50-50 split in the Senate. And of course, Democrats have the advantage because that brain surgeon that's vice president, she's the president of the Senate, any vice president is. And that's for the express purpose. If there is a 50-50 tie on any piece of legislation, the vice president cast the deciding vote, and Kamala Harris has done just that. And uh, some of this crazy Biden legislation has gone through based pretty much solely on her breaking a tie and foisting whatever that piece of legislation is on the American people. So every election is serious, but I think maybe the biggest is the Senate elections around the nation. We'll start quickly catching you up on what's going in some of these places. Out in Nevada, Republican Senate challenger Adam Laxalt, he finds himself today in a lead over the incumbent, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, who's the Democrat. And this poll we're talking about is among likely voters in the state Senate race. One point lead. Of course, that's in the margin of error. Yet Laxalt has led the race in seven of the last eight polls with an average lead of about two points. Cortez Masto has outspent Laxalt by a paltry $9 million. So we're inside of two weeks and one day now. The Nevada Senate race seems to be defined by soaring inflation, the poor economy. Greatest issues for Nevada voters are the economy, 84%. Inflation, 82. Crime, 69. Illegal immigration, 60%. Election integrity, 58%. And I think probably that's going to carry on across the nation. That's pretty much what every American, maybe not in those orders, but every American is concerned about. Now, there are some very important state races going on. Republican Abe Hamada holds a five-point lead over Democrat Chris Mays in Arizona's attorney general race. The poll was sponsored by Arizona's Family Stations, conducted by High Ground. It found that 43% of likely voters are backing Hamada, issues 38.2% who support his Democrat 
counterpart, Chris Mays. And the reason I brought that in there, it is very, very evident that in a lot of these state races, including the U.S. Senate races, that a lot of Democrats are struggling. In fact, if you look around and think it through, how many different appearances have you seen our president make with Democrats who are running around the nation? Now, when Joe Biden's asked about it, last Friday, we played a soundbite of him responding to that question about why aren't they your uh, Democrat candidates for various races? Why aren't they bringing you in to campaign with them? And Biden's response was, oh, you're wrong. I've been to 16 or 17, and there are that many more that want me to come help them, and I'm going to help them between now and Election Day. None of those numbers are accurate. That's Joe Bidenville. (laughs) That's the way Joe Biden thinks. Seriously. Now, you just heard Jesse Jesse, um, Waters talking about John Fetterman, who is the lieutenant general right now of the state of Pennsylvania running for the U.S. Senate seat. And it's interesting because he did have a stroke, a pretty bad one apparently, and he is recovering, we're told, the physician, the doctor that cleared him to run for the U.S. Senate allegedly donated to his campaign last year. Fetterman's campaign released a letter from his doctor declaring that his abilities have improved significantly since his recovery from that stroke back in May. And I'm glad for that. I don't want anybody to have to suffer from the aftermath of a stroke. Sometimes they're horrible. Sometimes you die. This doctor, Clifford Chin, wrote this. I've spoken with his neurologist and his cardiologist and will follow up with them routinely. The lieutenant governor takes the appropriate medications to optimize his heart condition and prevent future strokes. He also exercises routinely and can walk four to five miles regularly with no difficulty. Overall, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman as well shows strong commitment to maintaining good fitness and health practices. He has no work restrictions and can work full duty in public office. Now, I'll leave it up to you. Jesse Waters just played, I guess, two or three sound bites coming from John Fetterman himself trying to communicate. He's not doing that very well. Now, let me ask you this. Let's say he gets elected. The people of Pennsylvania send John Fetterman to Washington, D.C. to be their U.S. senator. And he gets in the Senate, and they're they're, uh, debating over legislation, and he goes up on the floor. And i got to be honest with you. This guy, if he goes up on the floor, everybody's going to stop and listen because he's 6'8". He weighs about 240 pounds. He's, He's got that. He's bald. Nothing wrong with being bald. I am. And he's got that goatee that he lets grow out. I've got a full beard, and I keep mine very close. And I'm not I'm not comparing me to John Fetterman. I'm just saying I'm a big guy, but I'm 6'1". He's a much bigger guy at 6'8". When he stands up and talks, everybody's going to listen. But he's got some audiological problems. You just heard just a minute ago. You heard a bunch of them. Those are current. I mean, that's where he is right now today. And I just can't see him getting in debates, trying to um, discuss pending legislation 
and for that, being able to effectively represent the people of Pennsylvania. Now, I don't know where it's going to stand. It's about 50-50 right now, Fetterman and Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz, of course, has got a very successful career as a doctor, and then, of course, his television show, and everybody knows him. Knows everything good, knows everything bad about him. That's one thing about having these high-profile people run to be uh, elected for any office in the government. If they're that high-profile, you always know a lot about them because news media, that's their job. They weigh in, they go take a look, and they expose everything, everything. Sometimes they lie about it, but they expose all of the issues their political opponents have. That's one thing I want to touch on. I got to be honest with you. I'm I'm very I, I'm tiring, like never before, facing an election. I'm tiring of all the vitriol and the anger and the hatred in this election cycle. And I said last time, I said in the 2020 election cycle, I just don't see how this has ever happened like this. I mean, it's like Democrats, and there's a difference between Democrat and Republican, except, you know, in, in spite and in addition to the obvious ones, but you can almost characterize the way Democrats view politics in, uh, in this way. Democrats, if they talk to you about their political perspectives and you don't like them, they demonize you. Congressman Mike Johnson, I think, is on the phone trying to call in. Let's see. Are you there, Congressman? Nope. Your call. He's not there, so we'll wait another minute for the congressman. But Democrats, if you disagree with them, they don't you don't they don't just disagree. They hate you. And they'll demonize you and mark you. Republicans, on the other hand, on the most part, if they talk to a Democrat and there is a, an issue that they disagree on, most Republicans will give their perspective and then they'll move on. They don't hate you. They don't hate you. Okay, they're having a problem getting through. And so let's just do this. Let me, let me just call Congressman Johnson and get him on the phone. Here we go. Ring, 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 ring. Hey, Dan. Hey. Hello. Hey, can you hear me okay? I got you. Is this Mike? Great. Is this Congressman? Yeah, this is Mike. Sorry, I was trying to get in there. It's too, it's too busy. I can't get in. I apologize <laughs> for that. Listen, when, uh, when you were trying to call, we were talking about the difference between Democrats, voters I'm talking about, and Republicans. A Republican, when he talks to a Democrat, um... There, there is a difference politically on almost every issue. And Republicans typically will share their perspectives, and if the Democrat disagrees, the Republican's going to say, okay, and kind of walk away. Democrats, on the other hand, and every one of them is not this way. When you talk to them and they give you their perspective and you disagree, uh, they want to hang you from the yard arms. They hate you. It's a vitriolic environment, and there's vitriol on both sides. I'm not saying that one is good and one is bad. I'm just saying this election cycle, it just seems to me like it's ramped up and people are going nuts. 
I think that's an accurate uh, description of what we're seeing. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons for that. You know, I get asked about this issue a lot, Dan, um, in various forums where I am. And, uh, you know, people say it seems to us that the chasm between the two parties is widening. And it seems that, it, you know, the vitriol is greater than ever before. And the hatred, I mean, those words are common, commonly used as people describe the, the current political atmosphere. And it's true. And then the, the next question people ask is, why? Why is that true? Well, there's a couple of answers, uh, I think, that describe why we're in this situation. One is, of course, that, you know, we have the advent of social media in the last decade, you know, and social media for all of its uh, benefits, in my view, has been, uh, you know, the Internet overall has probably had a very negative and corrosive, corrosive effect on, on our society and our culture because it becomes the venue where people can go to vent. And, and um, you know, we have that. Where, where you can go on and just attack your opponents mercilessly, relentlessly, 24-7. Uh, and then you also have the, the, the advent of the 24-hour news cycle that we didn't have in a previous generation. And so uh, you have the, the, the advent of multiple sources for information, whereas everybody in America used to go to the three broadcast stations to see their news. You know, Walter Cronkite was kind of like the, the great news source for everybody in America. Everybody watched the same three broadcasts. Well, now... You get your news from thousands of different sources, you know, and and people have a, the ability because they have choice in that to go to the news outlets that reinforce their own ideas and uh, and and really often attack the opposition. So you know, lots of lots of factors weigh in here and contribute, I think, to this what is a really unfortunate negative development that we we don't see one another as fellow Americans anymore. And and this is particularly true on the radical left, but it, as you say, it's also on the far right. We don't see our our political opponents as fellow citizens and fellow Americans. We see them as enemies, and it, it does not bode well for the future of a, a republic when you can't get people with very different philosophies and ideas to come together and work out those uh, differences through, through you know thoughtful debate and, and reach consensus that moves the ball forward for the most people. Right now, to put it bluntly. It's shirts and skins, you know. It's like it's like a pickup basketball game in the neighborhood, you know. <laughs> like you're you're on one team or the other, yeah. and whoever wins to the victor goes all the spoils. Real quickly, I just thought about this watching back then the three broadcast networks: ABC, CBS, and NBC. Even Walter Cronkite mentioned his name. To be honest with you, we didn't know if what we were hearing from those three right. networks, we That's didn't right. even know if they were telling us the truth. But now, oh my gosh. We can't believe anything anybody says. It's gotten that bad. It, it has, and that's, that's a question. I did three town halls on Thursday in three different parishes in Louisiana my, in my district. Um, one of the common questions that comes up, usually in the first you know, two or three uh, questions in a town hall is, what is a reliable source of news? You know, Where can we go? I mean, pe- people sense that, that what you just said, Dan, is true, and they have a real angst about it because they don't know what to believe. And, you know, this is a deeper thing, a root cause of all this, is that we we now, in, in modern society, we're a postmodern culture because over the last, you know, 70 or 80 years, we've been sliding down the slippery slope and the, you know, the radical transformation of um, of, of, of culture. And, and we have rejected truth it, it, that it exists at all. It's, you know, and postmodernism is basically a fancy word for saying there is no objective truth. And so now people feel like we're adrift without a rudder. Because, you know, I mean, in fact, they're teaching school children right now to find your truth, you know, go find your truth. What do you mean your truth? There is one truth, you know, but people sense that as well. And they feel 
um, they feel adrift. They feel rudderless, and, and, it, and it, it causes a lot of anxiety for obvious reasons. You know, we used to be, we used to be formed and, and built upon the idea that we can seek out the truth together. And now no, everybody rejects it. The culture rejects it, and that's a real problem. Before we move on to elections, uh, just to note my thoughts, and I've shared this often on the show, social media, when you can go on Twitter and open a Twitter account and you can just be totally anonymous, you can name yourself whatever you want to name yourself, I and then they go nuts on people like you and other oh, yeah. people with whom they disagree. There's no accountability for doing that. And it's like they're drive-by shooters. Right. And right. we're we're making choices and decisions. Americans out in the hinderland are making choices about political issues based upon some drive-by shooter and what that person is saying and presenting it as facts. So it's tougher and tougher to find the truth, even worse and getting even worse. Well, that that's true. And and just to before you leave the subject. You know, we were talking about Walter Cronkite as kind of sort of a symbol of this. You know, when you did just did have three news sources primarily, broadcast TV news or your local newspaper, um, you're right. We we never had an accurate way to determine whether what they were reporting was true, but there was a much higher probability that it was at least closer to the truth than a lot of what you hear broadcast now. And the reason is because, you know, it, it that in that generation and previous eras, I mean, and this is in our lifetime, Dan, when we were young. You know, when I was a kid. There, there wasn't that big of a chasm between the two political parties no, and no. their objectives. No. You know, I mean, the, the platforms of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party were largely the same. They were they were seeking the same end. They had effectively the same ideals. They were just different ideals on how to get there. But right now, you have you know the Democratic Party. This is not the party of your parents and grandparents, as you and I have talked about before. They they now are are seeking an entirely different vision for the country, a different idea of who we are. They want to they want to tear down the foundations and rebuild us in the you know in the mold of like a European style socialist utopia or something. And and so there's a there's a widening chasm between the two parties and between the two approaches, even to the news and and that you know, again, just contributes to the problem. Let's take that and move right into the upcoming election. You uh, you shared with us a couple of weeks ago, and things have been changing since then almost daily. Where do you see this, this election? Where's it going to go? Do you still feel confident we're going to have a big win and uh, take back the House in dramatic fashion? Where are you now? I, I, I do. I'm, I'm, my gut has told me this all along, and now the polling is is coming back and you know i think all pollsters now right left and center are now projecting a big red wave again um i, I actually believe that we have a chance to make it a tsunami i really do and, I, and i'm basing that on you know ear to the ground reports i mean i've been I, I didn't draw an opponent this time and so um i got reelected automatically so that's allowed me to go and assist our other members and who are up for re-election and our candidates and in places around the country and i'm telling you dan whether i have been in california or closer to the east coast it, it doesn't matter where i am i hear the same angst the same unrest the same sense of urgency that i that i hear here in, in louisiana where we live and i just i just believe that this is going to be a big year for us i think it may be historic and my projection is we get 25 seats uh, it's 25 seat majority in the house but but even some uh, very conservative pollsters, I mean conservative in terms of you know their projections, um, are are saying it could be larger than that. They're saying 30 seats or more. 
um, that would be a huge thing. I also believe we're going to win the Senate. I, I believe we're going to win it by one or two seats. The Republican majority will be restored in both houses of Congress. And that is going to be a huge thing for the country. And, of course, it will set up the epic battle of all battles for the White House in 24. Republicans in the House that came out with their commitment to America. Last time we spoke, I told you um, how upset I was because we weren't getting any information about the details of the commitment to America. I'm sitting here looking at it now. And the areas an economy that's strong, a nation that's safe, a future that's built on freedom, a government that's accountable. And there are some line item bullet points underneath that. But here's what I want to ask you. You talked about getting ready for it like it wasn't done previously when the Republicans took over and they were surprised they got it. They weren't ready to get started. Is there specific legislation that you guys have already put together and you're in agreement that fall under these categories that as quickly as you guys take over in the House, which would be January, what's the date where the, the house changes January? Yeah, we, we, we take our oath January 3rd. So, okay. So that's when you'd be in charge. Is there legislation, a stack of it that's going to address these specific issues? There, there is. And, and there's a reason that we're not parading the legislative text around because first of all, most people would get lost in the details, but what it would be is the, the democratic operatives you know would go through with a fine tooth comb and pull out a line or two they don't like and try yeah. to make ads out of it so yeah. there, there's a there's a science to this you know you don't uh, you don't cast your pearls before the swine so to speak that's that's a bible verse i didn't make that up but that's what um <laughs> you know this we're, we're following the model that newt gingrich and the republicans used so successfully back in the mid-90s with the contract with america and newt had a hand in this and and many others as well and this is kind of how you do it now th- that is not to say Dan, as you're pointing out, we do have legislative text for yeah. all, almost all of this, yeah. um, already drafted, ready to roll. But now here's here's the here's the thing where you have to temper expectations. Now let, let's say that we have a let's say we have a 30 seat majority in the House. That means we can pass anything, all of our initiatives and everything we put on the floor. Of course, we don't need any Democratic support. You know, uh, support. We hope, always hope to get it, but that's not even in the calculus. It'll pass the House. Then it goes to the Senate. Well, here's the problem. Without a 60-seat majority, that's the threshold you need for most substantive legislation to pass now. Um, we may get a few moderate Democrats, if there are any left in the Senate after this election cycle, uh, that will go along. But it's, it's unlikely you're going to get 60 votes on most of the big transformational legislation that we have planned. And so what that will do is set up some epic battles in the Senate. Uh, it, it's not likely that the, the big-ticket items are going to pass both houses and be sent to the White House. But even if it did, you would expect that Joe Biden or Kamala will, if she's there and he's not, uh, that they'll veto it. Yeah. Um, now, the big question, and we talked about this before, you and I have, but the, the big question that hangs over this election is, let's say we have a majority in both houses. Um, what does what does a President Biden do uh, at that point? I referenced Newt Gingrich and the Republican majority. They took the majority in the House for the first time in 40 years, and it got everybody's attention. Bill Clinton was the president at the time, of course. He never saw the light, but he felt the heat. And so after that election cycle, he went to Newt and he said, let's work together. I'm, I'm, I'll work with you. Let's do some things. Now, he, he went against his, his own White House staff, all, everybody on the left, all the advisors in the Democratic Party. But Bill Clinton was selfish and he wanted it to be about his legacy, thankfully, because they got some things done. They did welfare reform. They, they got all the boxes checked on the contract with America, the big 10 items. Um, and, and that's because Bill Clinton worked with them. So the question is right now. If we have this big red wave on November 8th, as we all anticipate, what does Joe Biden do then? Does he does 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 he say 
to himself, wow, maybe I should revert to form and maybe I should do some things. Maybe we should fix some of these incredible problems that are crushing the country right now. Or, or does he have the does he have the strength within him to do that? Will the will the radical left that really controls him and the country right now allow him to do it? You know, I'm skeptical about it, but he has that opportunity. I'm not a doomsayer, but I got to be honest with you. I don't see that happening. I think they're going to fight to the death. I think that is their plan, and they're not going to walk away from it. We and we need. I think if we get that uh, majority in the Senate, even though it'll be small and it won't be sixty. I think there probably are enough senators on the other side that can read the handwriting on the wall and what the people are telling them. And on some of that big legislation that you referenced, I think we'll be able to get it passed. But you're going to have to work your butts off, I promise. Yeah, I think I think that's probably right. Um, so there, 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 there's some hope. Uh, you know, if he does veto it, it you know, we we won't. We very likely would not have the number of votes we would need to override a veto in the Senate. Right. Uh, but I, I tell you what it does, though, Dan, is it it will draw a stark contrast for the people. They'll see what we're really about and what we're willing to do for the country on the Republican side. And as, as I mentioned earlier, that will then set up uh, what is what promises to be one of the great battles for the White House, the most fateful, probably the most fateful presidential election, certainly in our lifetime, if not maybe in the history of the country. Well, we're going to wait to talk to you about that because that's a two-year venture that we're looking at. The final subject that I told you I wanted to get your way in is this FBI in the Department of Justice, a guy named James Gordon Meek, a former ABC reporter. He's been missing for six months after the FBI very mysteriously and abruptly raided his home. Nobody knows why. Nobody knows where he is. That's just one example. And and then this DOJ, a DOJ has really been weaponizing their attacks on pro-life activists. They've, uh, they've, 11 of these demonstrators have been charged with conspiracy against rights secured by that Freedom of Access Clinton uh, Clinic Entrances FACE Act. And what that does is stops obstructing the entrance to an abortion facility while the other four were charged with violating the, the, that law according to a summary of the indictment all around the nation. All of these attacks that are happening on pro-life clinics, I mean, burning them all. Nobody gets, nobody gets arrested. The DOJ under Merrick Garland and the FBI under Christopher Wray, they are weaponizing the power of the Department of Justice against conservatives. Can you believe this is happening, and can we do something about it? Uh, we definitely can, and we must. And we've been so frustrated by these developments over the last two years because in the minority in the House, people don't realize that, um, most people don't realize that you don't, we don't have any authority to hold a hearing, launch an investigation, or subpoena witnesses, even in, you know, certainly administration officials like uh, Merrick Garland, the, the attorney general, or Christopher Ray, because the minority party is not allowed the power to do so. Now, of course, as we note, that's all going to change in early January, and you're going to see a torrent of oversight hearings and accountability um, that, that is long, long overdue. But what you said is is so important. You know, my um, I serve on the House Judiciary Committee and Armed Services, and in judiciary, um, we have oversight over the Department of Justice, over the FBI. This is our responsibility that, that in our constitutional system, Congress 
oversees all this. And and we've seen from day one that the Biden Garland Department of Justice, as you said, has been weaponized for openly partisan purposes. Some of the examples you list are, are just the tip of the iceberg. There is so much going on. They have been you know, selectively prosecuting conservatives, of course, and we, we've we've launched congressional in, inquiries into this. We can't do an investigation because we don't have the power to do so. But we have sent letters to Merrick Garland and all the various division heads in DOJ, um, inquiring, seeking records. We, we've told them to preserve their records. We formally sent out records preservation notices. So while they have not responded to any of our hundreds of letters of request, they're all pending, they're all documented, and they will have to respond in early January because then we have subpoena power. So I, I just I want to tell you to hang on because what you see is actually happening. What everybody senses is actually happening. And some of this will begin even before January in terms of public awareness because I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. Um, sometime this week we're planning to release what will likely be a 50-page summary of what the whistleblowers in, within the FBI have revealed to us over the last year. Uh, we have many whistleblowers who have come forward. We've, we've, we've summarized and documented all that, and this is going to be an explosive report uh, that comes out uh, sometime this week, I hope. I am actually was editing that before I called in. Jim Jordan and I were talking about it this morning. Um, that our, our House Republicans in the, in the Judiciary Committee uh, are going to release this, and it's going to go off like an atomic bomb. Would you make sure somebody in your organization sends us a copy of that when you do? For sure, for sure. You won't be able to miss it, I think. I, I mean, it's that big, yeah, I got Of course, it. the mainstream media is going to try to bury it, but this is going to be uh, one of those political earthquake documents. And, and um, it, it's not timed for the election. They're going, they're going to accuse us of that. But it has taken us this long uh, to gather and, and quantify uh, all the information that we've received over the last year. And this is as soon as we could get it done. Will you be able to use the power of the purse to bring the DOJ to its knees? If you guys, if, yes, if, well, you among other things, but that. you know, it, it begins with that, uh, accountability, bringing them before the American people who deserve answers and televised hearings, you know, um, and, and asking them the questions that they've been evading for two years. I, I, I think for example, you know, one of the, uh, divisions that we have, uh, jurisdiction over his Department of Homeland Security. And so, you know, Secretary Mayorkas, for example, I mean, the guy's a criminal. You know, I mean, he's openly, intentionally flouting federal immigration law every single day. We've had five million illegals come into the country since Joe Biden took office, counting the gotaways and everything. So, I mean, this is a, it, it, it is truly like an existential crisis to the country, and they've had no accountability for it at all. So, uh, you know, we drag Mayorkas in for a series of hearings. I think that guy will resign. I mean, if not, he probably deserves to be impeached. So there is there is much activity ahead of us, and um, and I think it's long, long overdue. Got to be honest with you. When that happens, I think I'd like a seat upstairs in the chamber. I'd like to be there when you guys are drilling. <laughs> well, it's, it's kind of like uh, watching an LSU football game. You could get uh, a seat up in the stadium, but sometimes the best is watching it at home. And you're, you're right. You're, you're, you're right. up you. At least you can. At least you can eat popcorn while you're watching it. That's right. That's exactly right. Thank um, you so yeah, much for stay your. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we appreciate it every time you come here. Uh, hopefully, the next time we talk, you'll be doing a victory lap about a big, big win in two weeks, and you'll give us some more insight about what's ahead. Absolutely, can't wait. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate what you do. Thank you, Congressman. See you soon. Okay. In the steel industry, we dedicate our careers to supporting this country. 
making products to build infrastructure and skylines, creating jobs, supporting families. And when domestic materials are used, the money stays in our communities. That's what really matters. These people, these places, that's worth supporting. Meet Phil Sklar, co-founder of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. Our dream is to make Milwaukee, Wisconsin the bobblehead capital of the world. At American Family Insurance, we believe your dreams are the most valuable things you will ever own. So today, we're supporting Phil's dream. If people would like to be a part of the bobblehead dream, we take donations in money or bobbleheads. Every dream deserves a champion. Find yours at AmFam.com. American Family Insurance. American Family Mutual Insurance Company and its affiliates. 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin, 53. I love going all natural. It just makes me feel better. Nothing between me and my 100%. All-natural, juicy, grass-fed beef. Introducing the All-Natural Burger, the first ever in fast food. With no antibiotics, no added hormones, and no steroids. Only at Carl's Jr. Taking the time to speak the truth, no matter the cost. Dan Newman, TNN, the Truth News Network. One good thing about having Congressman Johnson on the show here periodically, he comes about maybe once or twice a month, is um, that I can ask him, we have a personal friendship, and I can pretty much ask him anything without him going nuts. And he also knows that I respect his position, and uh, not just that he's a congressman, but that he has very high seats in the Republican Party. I think now he's considered to be the number four the number um, four in the chain of, I don't want to call it command, but in leadership in the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. So he is in the middle of pretty much everything going on. At least he knows about it. And when he calls in, you'll always hear me get on the line asking him some questions that I know he can't really get into in a heavy way, sometimes not giving us details, but then he'll do what he said He'll give us a hint every once in a while about something big coming out. But one thing that you need to do, whoever your member of Congress is, especially on the House side, stay in touch with them. Develop a relationship with them and not a negative one. Create a scenario in which you have the liberty to talk to them about good stuff, about bad stuff, and to be able to ask them questions and that you have a confidence that you're going to get an answer. A truthful answer. If we begin to, in a greater way than ever before, hold those members of the United States Congress, especially the House of Representatives, hold them accountable. And I mean literally, how do you hold them accountable? You listen to what they say, what they promise, and if and when they don't do it, or if they do stuff that you don't like, make sure they know what your thoughts are. Congressman Johnson's told me many times, the problem with this is most Americans don't do just that. They don't communicate with their members of the House of Representatives. So those members, what are they going to do? They're going to listen to the voices from which they hear 
And sadly, many of the voices they hear are people that are in the lobbying and the news business. What does that do? It gives them a very skewed perspective on stuff. And therefore, when a piece of legislation comes before them, their people that they represent in their districts haven't weighed in on any of it. You need to find out the legislation that is coming up. And there are several different websites that will do that on a daily basis. And when something new happens or is being considered, you'll get an email about it. That's getting engaged. And it doesn't take reams of time to do that. I highly recommend that you do those things. Now, Mike Johnson's the congressman from the 4th Congressional District. That's a big swath of south, uh, excuse me, northwest Louisiana running down into the, our southwest parishes. Uh, it's, a, it's a big district. But then over the state, we have who I call the Mark Twain of this generation, Senator John Kennedy. And John Kennedy is a statesman. I think nobody can say that's not the truth. And I love to hear him weigh in on a lot of big issues. And if you get him on the phone or you listen to him in an interview on television, you're going to hear a lot of perspectives. And he's very colorful. And I love the way he talks about things, not just, you know, nailing something on the head and saying, bam, here's the way it is. He gives a perspective that, in many cases, we share. And he did just that with Sean Hannity talking about inflation. Here now with reaction to all of this uh, is, of course, Louisiana Senator John Kennedy is up for re-election. We are enthusiastically supporting that re-election. I think the good people of Louisiana uh, know that he's done a good job for them. Senator, welcome back. Great to have you. Thank you, Sean. You uh, First, you mentioned electric vehicles. If electric vehicles are so swell, why does government have to pay people to drive them? Uh, food for thought. <laughs> well, uh, number two, you, you know mentioned... What? In th- I wish I thought of that. That's a great uh, line. Well, it's true if you think about it. Number two, you mentioned inflation. Inflation was made in Washington since President Biden was inaugurated 540 days ago. Prices are up 13.2%. Here's another way of looking at that. Uh, a dollar, this buck, is now worth, in purchasing power, about 87, maybe 88 cents. So, uh, what is President Biden doing about it? You might be thinking, you know, people make mistakes. What's he going to do about it? What's he doing about it? Well, the president has decided to drink himself sober. Um, first, he passed a $750 billion so-called inflation Reduction Act, which takes $300 billion in higher taxes out of the pockets of the American people when the economy is slowing, prices are rising, and 401ks are crashing. And he gives that $300 billion of taxpayer money to the Green New Deal industrial complex, which will properly spend it in a way that causes energy prices to go up without reducing world temperatures a scintilla of a degree because China and India refuse to stop uh, emitting CO2. And then for his second trick, uh, the president decided to spend $1 trillion 
to forgive student debt. Now, we already had a plan to repay student debt. It's called a job, and it was working just fine. <laughs> you were on your um, A-game. Well, you are on but, your A-game. I'm not interrupting. But if you, if you look at this from 35,000 feet, I think this is, this is obvious. And, and, and that's why I, I say that um, President Biden is inflation's best friend. Inflation loves President Biden. Inflation loves President Biden like the devil loves sin. Um, and I don't see where they've done anything whatsoever except sing folk songs um, to, to try to stop it ravaging the American people. You know, why the celebration on a day when inflation went up yet again, Senator? And if we use the same methodology that they used in the 1980s to calculate uh, inflation numbers, uh, we'd be at 16 percent. That's how yeah. bad it really is. They just have twice now adjusted the methodology of how they calculate that. Um, so it's that bad. And then we've got this other little problem. Well, we're going to pay off student debt that people willingly took on. And then we're going to advise our brave men and women in the military uh, how to best get on food stamps. Uh, maybe the alternative would be to take the the trillion dollars in student debt forgiveness and maybe give it to the military so that they can afford to pay for the food themselves. What do you think? Well, of course, you, you, I think you're right, Sean, but, but to, not to put too fine a point on it, but the president, uh, he's not uh, really um, forgiving student debt. Somebody's got to pay for it. He's just transferring it from the people who owe it, the college elite, to the people who don't owe it. Uh, working-class Americans. Um, but the way the president handled, handled, has handled the economy, his social and economic policies, um, how can I put this? Your aunt's Facebook page has more credibility with the American people than President Biden does when it comes to the economy. And, and I, think, I think voters are going to go medieval on him. I'm not, I, I'm not going to mince any words. This inflation was made in Washington in large part by President Biden's socioeconomic policies. And, you know, I, I'm not, I don't mean to speak ill of the president, but if the shoe fits, wear it, Cinderella. I mean, he, 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 his policies cause this. Nobody, nobody else can portray what's happening in reality in terms that we, the American people, can understand. Nobody does a better job than does Senator Kennedy. By the way, Congressman Mike Johnson has no opponent in the midterm election coming up, nor does Senator Kennedy. If he does, I don't even know about it. Um, and it's because both those guys are doing a good job, and voters see it, they know it, and they like it. So in that scenario, it's going to be tough for somebody to go after an incumbent, one that's really doing good. And on the other side, Democrats are seeing that exact thing play out where they're being challenged in, I mean, large numbers, multiple Republicans running against some of these incumbents. Do you know the name Patty Murray? Patty Murray's a senator. She's been in the U.S. Senate for 30 years up in Washington State. And she's really been kind of in the situation that Senator Kennedy finds himself in. The people of Washington, they just, oh, they loved Patty Murray and what she did. She could do no wrong, so they just kept voting for her. But now, 
even Democrat, I mean big Democrat state Washington, voters there are saying, you know what, enough's enough. And her opponent in this race in two weeks is named Tiffany Smiley. And she's done such a good job, folks. Right now, she's beating Patty Murray in the polls. Here's what Smiley said Sunday evening in a debate in Spokane. Our children are set back terribly. And she pointed to a massive decline in the test scores and an increase in childhood anxiety and self-harm. And those are results, she says. Now, she's a candidate. She says that's a result of Democrat pandemic protocols for schools. You doubled down. And she's talking to Senator Murray. You doubled down. You said you have no regrets how we handled the pandemic. You were a champion of mandates and shutdowns. And our kids suffered. Senator Murray was given the first opportunity to answer, defended herself saying, what I did from the first was to make sure that we had the money to get our schools to make sure that they could reopen safely. My opponent keeps talking about this like it was a national decision, Murray continued. It was up to local school boards based on public health reasons. Let me just say this about that. Congress never passes a bill, never, that includes giving a bunch of money to local entities. I mean, governments, I'm talking about state governments, local governments. They don't do that unless there are strings there, and those strings are there to keep it from being abused. Do you know that fully 60% of the federal funding that was included in our pandemic COVID-19 bills, the relief bills, 60% of that money that was earmarked to go to help schools around the nation on the local basis to get them retrofitted if they needed to do things in heating and air conditioning, venting, and all those kinds of things. And when I say 60%, I'm talking about several hundred billion dollars hasn't been spent. Now, why would that be? Well, it would be senators and members of the House of Representatives, senators like Patty Murray up in Washington. She did not get with her leaders in her state and get the exact details of what they were going to do with that money that they get it. So it's not spent. Nobody talks about that. Why would that happen? That is one of, if not the most important things about their jobs during the pandemic. They let Patty Murray, she let down the people of Washington that she apparently so-called is a representative of. Now, we haven't talked about January 6th, hadn't gotten into that the last couple of days, and the reason is our buddy, our friend from right here in Shreveport, Louisiana, Steve Baker, is in D.C. regarding exclusively and totally the fallout from the January 6th people that were arrested and specifically the Oath Keepers, which is not a gang. It's actually a group of farmer military people. I'm talking about people that served in the military, active in many different branches and in many different positions. They joined together and their purpose, it's stated in their name, Oath Keepers. In other words, they swore an oath 
to protect and defend the Constitution when they join the military. And they still feel like they have that obligation. And so what they did on January 6th, they did not go in there and do what is alleged that they went in for. D.C., the Capitol Police, were told these evil oath keepers that are coming in, we're getting all the chatter online and they're bringing lots of arms. They're going to come in fully armed. And so you better be ready for it. Of course, they were investigated heavily. Many of them arrested. Not one gun, not one oath keeper had a gun on their person, nor in their cars or in their hotel rooms when the FBI investigated that. So let me say this. Don't you think it'd be kind of tough to do an insurrection, overthrow a government without any guns? changing the election results that day, forcing their way into the Capitol to get to those lawmakers before they voted to confirm the so-called real election results that came from the various states? Don't you think they would have been armed if they had intentions to do anything close to that? None of them were armed. And, of course, the January 6th committee never asked any questions about that. They control because they are the ones, the Democrats are the ones that put this committee together under the watch of Nancy Pelosi. And so there are two Republicans on the committee, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger. Both of them are leaving office. Adam Kinzinger is not running for re-election. Uh, Cheney She was defeated in the primary election, I mean dramatically trounced by her opponent in large part because of what she's doing now and what she hasn't done for the people of her state, Wyoming. Liz Cheney, Dick Cheney, remember him, former vice president, advisor to George W. Bush? He was a hawk. He was a warmonger. He wanted to go to war. He was the author of both of the Iraq wars. Now think about American military members that lost their lives in those wars. We didn't win any of the one of them. Did you hear me? We didn't win any one of those. And thousands of American young men and women gave their lives. So Cheney, she looks at Donald Trump, her dad, Dick Cheney, former vice president, He looks at Donald Trump, and Donald Trump doesn't think the way the Cheneys do. And so Liz Cheney, I mean, she has painted Donald Trump as a traitor. Nothing he's done, nothing, I don't care what it is they can bring up that illustrates anything like that. Now let me tell you what she came out over the weekend and says she's going to do. She's not going to stay in her seat representing the people of Wyoming in the uh, U.S. House of Representatives, Mike Johnson talked about the new session beginning. They take their oaths on January 3rd. Well, she won't be taking that oath. So what's she going to do? She said yesterday, you're not going to believe this, but she said she's going to do everything possible. That includes a potential 2024 presidential run to stop Donald Trump from entering the Oval Office again. She actually said that. She's become one of the most vocal voices in the Republican Party against Trump. She made the comment in an interview on NBC's Meet the Press yesterday, arguing 
the Republican Party will shatter if Trump becomes the GOP presidential nominee. She said this, I think the party is either to come back from where we are right now, which is a very dangerous and toxic place, or the party will splinter and there will be a new conservative party that rises. She's talking to Chuck Todd, who is the worst interviewer in the nation. Cheney added that if Trump becomes the Republican nominee, the party will shatter and there will be a conservative party that rises in its place. So Chuck Todd, of course, continued. He told Cheney that some Americans believe that if she would be a third-party candidate in 2024, it would potentially be enough to stop Trump from becoming president again. Cheney said, well, we'll do whatever it takes. As I said, he will not be president again. So Trump hasn't yet made any definitive statements on whether he would run for the nation's highest office, but he has strongly suggested that he would in numerous speeches and interviews after he left office in January of 21. Chuck Todd also asked Cheney, who said, by the way, in mid-August that she was considering running for president but hasn't yet made a decision. He asked her what it would take for her to run. Look, I'm going to be very focused on all the things we've been talking about, and I care deeply, she said, as I know you do, as millions of American people do, about this nation and about the blessing that we have as a constitutional republic. As she continued, I'm focused on what we've got to do to save the country from this very dangerous moment we're in. Not right now on whether I'm going to be a candidate or not. So she's got the tag of Rhino, Republican in name only. And people in the Republican Party have labeled her that. And she lost that primary in Wyoming to Trump back challenger. Harriet Hageman in August. She said in September she's not going to remain a Republican if Trump is the GOP presidential nominee in 2024. Now, let me tell you what all of this is about. I, I've never spoken to her. Uh, I was a fan of hers early on in her congressional career because she said some very, very good conservative things. She supported all the conservative causes. But then when... Donald Trump came on the scene. She just went sour. Actually, I saw her dad do a television commercial supporting his daughter, Liz Cheney, on her run for re-election. But in that ad, Dick Cheney just blasted Donald Trump. I thought that was very odd. But then when you peel back the layers of why these two might be like that father-daughter and be so vitriolic about the former president, what do you think the purposes are? If you look at what the Cheneys did, you combine Liz Cheney and her dad. Her dad was in politics for a long time. He was never president, but he was vice president, and he was involved in uh, intelligence community matters. He knew what the inside of our government looked like. He saw the belly of the beast firsthand. He was part and participle to the Iraq wars, both of them, Bush 41 and Bush 43. It was not a good thing, and many Americans lost their lives for the purpose of feeding the wallets 
of Dick Cheney, by the way, was the president of Halliburton. That is an oil field, a major oil field service company. Pretty much, I'd say 90% of the oil wells around the United States and around the world, Halliburton was involved in the service part of all of that. He made millions of dollars. And of course, Halliburton, the company and people in it were big donors and still are to conservative candidates that run for office, state, local, and national level. But Dick Cheney, he always seemed mad when he talked, and he still does. And Liz Cheney, of course, she's mad when she talks. Every time she talks, she talks about one thing and one thing only. Hate Donald Trump. Hate him. Now, one would think, looking at what accomplishments for the American people were made under the presidency of Donald Trump, that people would be pretty positive and thankful for that. And I would think, most people would think that the Cheneys would feel the same way, but they don't. Why is that? They live in a world, top to bottom, that is totally segregated from the lives of Wyomans, in their case, where they both live, but also around the nation, Americans. You would think that they would share the conservative thoughts and causes and would accept all the good things that Donald Trump did when he was president and reject everything, the bad policies and the outcomes for the Obama-Biden eight years and be thankful, especially in comparing at all the good that Donald Trump did And if you think about the fact that he did not, he had trouble getting legislation passed because as Liz Cheney, she was in Congress and those that were like-minded, other rhinos, they hated, they hated Donald Trump and his policies. And so many of us asked the question, why? I did for a long time, but let me tell you, I came to a conclusion of what it's all about. You know what I think it was about and is about? They don't like the fact that Donald Trump effectively was able to educate the American people that government, big government, is evil and needs to be clipped and its power as they use it now, take it away. They think Donald Trump, if he's reelected, is going to go after a lot of them and take their power away. And it's not, it's not about money, folks. Money used to be what Washington, D.C. was all about, and it's still a big factor. But it's not so much nearly as big a factor as it was a decade ago, turn of the century. No. That was when it was all about money. They found out very quickly if you have the power to control the American government, if you have that power, money's just one of the things you can get. There are so many other things that come along with power, so many things that they don't even have to think about those things. They just are automatic. Influence over every sector of the nation. And when you have that, money floods your way automatically. And so you can do whatever it is that you do and not have to worry about money. Wouldn't it be wonderful 
if it worked the same way at your house or my house, it doesn't. It really doesn't. Um, and so they look at the world totally different. Her, she and her husband, they're multimillionaires. Dick Cheney, he may be a billionaire. And both of those families, Cheney Sr. and Cheney Jr., they all got their money from working in and for the American government. I'll just ask you this question, and we'll leave this story. How did they get it? <laughs> Have you read the front page story of today's truthnewsnet.org, the website? Go look at it. The title of the show is Political Corruption Part 3. We've been chronicling different lawmakers through the years, the last couple of decades even, and the way that many of them, not just one or two, but many of them, have manipulated things in the government, specifically legislation. And these lawmakers have weaponized it against the American people to get money. It's a horrible thing, but it is actually happening. And it's happening on Joe Biden's watch. He's not doing anything about it, doesn't even really care about it. You know why? Because he's a part of it. He always has been. Base pay for a legislator, $170,000 a year. That's a lot for a lot of people, but it's real expensive to operate a family home back in your district or your state that you represent and have a place to live, however it is, an apartment, a condo, whatever it is in Washington, D.C. It's hard to take that 170 and to be able to support yourself in both places. So what do they do? They come up with all kinds of ways to skirt the system and use the system for monetary gain. I wish I'd had time to talk to Congressman Johnson. Who makes the rules the pay rules, the compensation rules for every member of Congress. You would think it'd be the people in their districts, people in their states. Uh-uh. Congress sets their pay rates for themselves, and they determine when they're going to get a raise, and raises in Congress are not based upon what you've done in the way of good legislation and effectively and fervently representing the people in the state and the district that you come to D.C. from. Nope, none of that matters. All that matters is what these people think because they, Congress, has all the power. The new Amazon Echo has everyone asking Alexa for help. Alexa, what time is it? What the hell is wrong with this blasted thing? Amanda! But the latest technology isn't always easy to use for people of a certain age. These kids done bought me a busted machine again. On this! That's why Amazon partnered with AARP to present the new Amazon Echo Silver, the only smart speaker device designed specifically to be used by the greatest generation. It's super loud and responds to any name even remotely close to Alexa, so they can find out the weather. Allegra. What is the weather outside? It is 74 degrees and sunny. Huh? It is 74 degrees and sunny. Where? Outside. What about it? 
The temperature outside is 74 degrees and sunny. I don't know about that. The latest in sports. Clarissa, how many did old Satchel strike out last night? Satchel Paige died in 1982. How many he get? Satchel Paige is dead. He what now? Died. Who did? Satchel Paige. Oh. I don't know about that. Even local news and pop culture. Anita, what them boys up to across the street? They are just playing. They what now? They are just playing. You say they just playing now? Yes, they are just playing. I don't know about that. Hear it to smart devices like your thermostat. Alessandra, turn the heat up. The room is already 100 degrees. Are you trying to kill me, Alize? The new Amazon Echo Silver plays all the music they loved when they were young. Angela, play black jazz. Playing, uh, jazz. It also has a quick scan feature to help them find things. Emilia, where did I put the phone? The phone is in your right hand. And it has an uh-huh feature for long rambling stories. So then I gave him five dollars, and he said I only gave him one dollar. Uh-huh. I said, I know I gave you a five. Uh-huh. Because I only had a five and a one only. Uh-huh. And this is the one dollar right here. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you tell me who's crazy. Amazon Echo Silver. Get yours today. I said get yours today. To order Amazon Echo Silver, send a check or money order to Amazon.com right now. singers michael mcdonald's got that voice you never when you hear it you never doubt who that is oh that's michael mcdonald anyway before you get away steve baker just popped in and texted me from washington dc one of those five people that are on trial the oath keeper oath keeper people steve rhodes this morning he was sick all weekend was rhodes and he tested positive for covid And so they have put the trial on hold until he gets back. But Steve Baker will be here tomorrow morning to share the latest and give us an update. I mean, he hadn't been here for a week, so there's a whole lot, a whole lot that has happened during the week. He's going to be here for that. Don't want to get away without telling you about something that just frosted me when I heard about it. Teachers in the annual Northwest Teaching for Social Justice Conference The topics this year, decolonizing our minds, intersectional feminism, and whiteness. This year's conference, it's titled, the whole conference is Rethinking Our Classrooms, Organizing for Better Schools. They're going to include conversations on race, transgenderism, and the environment, all from the leftist perspective, of course. It's happening in Washington State. And those who organize this conference, when they're asked about these titles, they explain that they are dedicated to sustaining and strengthening public education through social justice, teaching, and education activism. One of the sessions is titled, Decolonizing Our Minds, Amplifying Indigenous Cultures, to inspire responsible action. 
The description of it reads, rooting out systems of white supremacy is key to transforming students' experiences. And during the session, the school personnel will explore the importance of decolonizing our minds to break down white supremacist culture in the classroom. If you happen to be white, and if you, by, oh my God, if you're one of those evil MAGA people, you're automatically a white supremacist. Did you know that? It is a fact. You can just ask these people. Hey, listen, thank you for being here today. If you want to grab that uh, conversation with Congressman Mike Johnson, you can grab it from any one of the podcast sites that will pick this show up in just minutes. All of them. Spotify, iHeart, Google, all of them. And we'll be back tomorrow, second hour tomorrow. Steve Baker, live from Washington, D.C. Have a great Monday, folks. Lost and all alone I always thought that I could make it on my own But since you left, I hardly make it through the day My tears get in the way And I need you back to stay I wandered through the night And searched the world to find the words to make it right All I want is just the way it used to be I need you here with me I've got to make you see That I'm lost without your love Life without you isn't worth the trouble of I'm as helpless as a ship without a wind A touch without a fear
Had love before, we could have.